Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Evelyn Song, and I am a Hopkins Internal Medicine resident, future cardiologist, and a diehard cardio nerd. I am very excited and proud to announce that I will be one of the chief fellows for the upcoming Cardio Nurse Academy, where we will work together to learn, produce, and disseminate digital education for everyone. So stay tuned for a bright future in asynchronous medical education. We hope you enjoyed this phenomenal episode, the ninth part of our in-depth prevention series produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. We get to learn all about diabetes mellitus from Dr. Dennis Brumer, an absolute authority who is double-boarded in endocrinology and cardiology. Diabetes is a potent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, so let's learn how to fight it together. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is HIPAA compliant. Now, let's dive into the sugary world of diabetes mellitus. Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Amit here. We are so excited for this installment of our cardiovascular prevention series with a deep dive into diabetes, which I think you'll learn by the end of the episode is so important for us cardiners to pay attention to. We're joined by a phenomenal and true genuine expert in the field, Dr. Dennis Brumer. He's the director of the Center for Cardiometabolic Health in the section of preventive cardiology and rehabilitation at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Brumer, earned his MD and PhD degrees from the University of Hamburg in Germany, following residency training in internal medicine and cardiology in Berlin. Dr. Brumer completed a two-year research fellowship as the Diabetes Center Fellow in the Department of Endocrinology at UCLA. He is board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, cardiovascular disease, and echocardiography. Quite a unique combination. And Dr. Brumer's research is focused on mechanisms of atherosclerosis and risk factor intervention for the prevention of coronary artery disease. Dr. Brummer, it's such a pleasure to invite you to the show. We're so excited to have you on. And as I invite you, I'm going to just reflect on your unique training path. We were just discussing before we started the recording here that there's going to be probably a lot of interest in pursuing some sort of combined diabetology, cardiovascular education for a cohort in the future. But Would you mind just telling us how you got interested in really devoting yourself to cardiometabolic disease and diabetes in general? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, I'm super thrilled to be here, and I'm so excited to be talking to the nerds here tonight. So I I think it's phenomenal what you guys are doing. And again, I, I very much appreciate the opportunity here. So so I was I'm kind of bridged between endocrinology and cardiology. I have Back in Germany, I did my thesis actually in endocrinology and lipoprotein metabolism, and that kind of got me interested in cardiology. I went to pursue cardiology training back in Germany, and then a research fellowship at UCLA, 
I was supposed to go back after that to Germany, but I decided to stay. And then obviously being a foreign graduate here, I repeated training and I was always torn between the endocrine and preventive cardiology aspect and true cardiology. So I ultimately decided I'm just going to do both. So I did um, endocrinology fellowship and cardiology fellowship at the University of Kentucky. I had a phenomenal time there. And kind of still, even now, much of what we do in cardiology is really prevention, and that much of it is endocrinology. So I think these subspecialties really are complementary and, and work very closely together. Well, let me just say, on behalf of everyone here at the clinic, how glad we are that you decided not to go back and stay here and, and join us over here as a faculty, because you've just added tremendous value to the program, and you've been such an incredible resource for all of us. So um, we thank you for being here. Yes, Dr. Brumer, and I extend that thank you because, you know, you stayed, and here we are talking to the nerds. I think this is uh, totally fortunate, and I am uh, really happy to benefit from your staying here. Now, we are very excited to dive into cardiodiabetology, which begs the question, Dr. Brumer, we are cardio nerds. Why should cardiologists focus on diabetes? I mean, why not just refer our diabetic patients to endocrinologists or leave the A1C to their primary care doctors? Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the common theme, and that is the current care. We, we leave it to others in cardiology. Now, I think that is suboptimal. I think we as cardiologists, we see these patients all the time. I mean, when is there ever a patient in the cath lab that presents with an NSTEMI or STEMI that doesn't have diabetes? So we do see the far spectrum of this disease, of the cardiovascular complications that arise of having um, a diagnosis of diabetes. So I think we have to be involved in managing this. I think um, to a minimum, we should refer the patients to primary care or make sure that the diabetes is well managed or consult endocrinology. Now, as, as, as we all know, as physicians, quite frequently, not even that happens. So, and there's good evidence for that. If you look at registries, just about 6% of diabetic patients with cardiovascular disease actually get appropriate care for their diabetes and their cardiovascular condition. So, I mean, as you know, diabetes is associated with a two to four-fold increase in risk. It is a cardiovascular risk equivalent termed many, many years ago. 70% of our acute coronary syndrome patients have diabetes. So you you could argue, yes, we leave it to primary care but or the endocrinologist, but keep in mind that endocrinologists currently see about 5% of the patient population with diabetes. In the United States in 2012, we generated 280 endocrinologists per year. And these 280 endocrinologists are going to enter the workforce and per year and are supposed to take care of 100 million Americans with diabetes of prediabetes. So I think we have to expand the spectrum and we have to all work together. You know, I think I think that's important to build collaborative networks between endocrinologists, cardiologists, and the primary care physician. We as cardiologists, we treat lipids, we treat hypertension. So why is it that we don't treat diabetes? We had the same discussion. I'm old enough to remember this 
in the mid-90s when statins were being mostly managed by endocrinologists. You know, then the cardiologists became more comfortable over time. And now we prescribe statin to everyone on a daily basis. So I think of all the risk factors that we manage, diabetes stands out. It promotes a spectrum of other risk factors, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, obesity, smoking is all very common in diabetic patient populations. So I, I think we need to address the whole spectrum of metabolic risk in these patients. And I think cardiologists need to be comfortable because these medications that we now have are vascular active medications. And there is a considerable therapeutic inertia so I think there is um, plenty of room for, for all of us to do good medicine. Well, thank you, Dr. Brummer. And, you know, color me convinced. Uh, I think the jury is in. We as cardiologists just have to not only pay attention to diabetes, but really own it as a chief cardiovascular problem. Let's illustrate this further by getting back to a patient that many of our listeners will have gotten to know well by now from our case discussion and patient perspective episode, Kanak Amin. Let's recall that in 2015, at the age of 57, he was seen in clinic for polyuria, polydipsia, and blurry vision. Blood pressure in clinic was 152 over 102. His weight was 166 pounds with a BMI of 29. Labs had shown his, that his A1C by this time was 11.1 on diagnosis, and his urinalysis was positive for microalbuminuria. Thus, he was newly diagnosed at the same time with uncontrolled diabetes, hypertension, and an unhealthy weight. So Dr. Rumer, before we dive into diabetes medications, can you give us your bird's eye view of a comprehensive approach to diabetes? What's on your mind for a patient like this and what's on your checklist to do? Well, I mean, you know, as, as I mentioned, all cardiovascular risk factors are very common in patients with diabetes, not just sedentary lifestyle, overweight, hypertension, hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia. So we see the spectrum in this patient, you haven't given us the lipid profile, but I would be stunned if this was normal. So, so looking at this patient that you just illustrated, you have um, plenty of opportunity to prevent cardiovascular events. And you know, in this patient, the event rate is in the future going to be quite high because the patient already presents with microvascular complications. So this patient would very well fit the profile of a large cardiovascular outcome trial that was done in Denmark many years back called the Steno 2 trial, which was actually a collaborative approach between endocrinology and um, cardiology to manage exactly these patients. So if you, if you look at patients that present with prediabetes or diabetes with microalbuminuria, the, the goal is really to use a comprehensive approach. For this patient, for example, you see first the BMI is above 27. By guidelines, if the BMI is above 27, you can already consider medical weight loss management for this patient. So that puts you in the step of weight loss therapy. Of course, foremost, the first step for this patient would be comprehensive lifestyle therapy. That is always no matter what we discuss in diabetes, that is always the rule number one. We try to identify those patients that would be successful in engaging in lifestyle change. And that is um, not just includes medical nutrition therapy, physical activity, 
It also includes behavioral support in addition, of course, to smoking cessation, obstructive sleep apnea. So what I mean by behavioral support is really patient empowerment, motivational discussions, maybe even counseling for other underlying reasons. In other words, you want to help first the patient to be able to take care of himself and to recognize this risk and not neglect the risks. I think you want to make sure that the patient understands what these risk factors are and how he and you are going to treat this. So we mentioned first cornerstone would be a lifestyle therapy. Second for this patient would be weight loss therapy, particularly with his body mass index. You would treat the cardiovascular risk factors. You would treat the dyslipidemia if he had one. You would treat the hypertension. Of course, for this patient, you would use probably already a combination of medications, at least including an ACE inhibitor and an angiotensin receptor blocker. And then, of course, you would treat the hyperglycemia. So these are sort of the the main columns of care that you will address in this patient. And we can dive more into detail, I guess, in the next couple of minutes as to what specifically, how would we treat his diabetes. But I think if you look at the overall um, approach, comprehensive care, including lifestyle therapy, including lipid management, including hypertension management, and including hyperglycemia management, yield, at least in clinical studies, at least a 50% relative risk reduction for cardiovascular outcomes. That's a really powerful effect, Dr. Brumer. And, you know, just to get closure on our patient, you know, Connick proceeded to lose 30 pounds and got his diabetes under control with just metformin monotherapy, as well as his hypertension under control with just an angiotensin receptor blocker monotherapy. And he told us, just being consistent along the lines of what you were saying, that the things that allowed him to be so successful were counseling from a team of doctors, his primary care doctor and his cardiologist. Being referred to diabetes education, he said, was absolutely essential. And uh, his support structure at home, specifically his wife, get, giving buy-in and helping him maintain a healthy lifestyle. So I think a holistic approach is really important for him. Absolutely. And this is a great example of how much of these risk factors are actually reversible. So. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Brumer. That is a great way to systematically and comprehensively approach patients with diabetes. And I cannot even imagine a time, going back to what you said earlier, that cardiologists were uncomfortable with prescribing statins. And so I look forward to a time that I myself will feel comfortable prescribing some of these antihyperglycemic therapies and more importantly, taking the holistic approach that you're laying in front of us now and getting comfortable thinking outside of the box and really trying to meet my patient halfway in the different areas uh, and domains that they need. So, you know, counseling on healthy lifestyle is something many of us can improve on. Dr. Brumer, I'd love to learn what you say to your patients. Let's say I walk into your clinic with a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. What would you tell me about diet, exercise, and weight loss that would really make a difference and would stick? Yeah, I, I, I think the, it is one of the most important steps. At the same time, it is probably the most challenging aspect of care. In addition, it is the aspect of care that has the most powerful impact, I would say, as we just alluded to in the previous case. So uh, the way I approach these patients, and that's kind of along pretty much all the recommendations, but I think if you do this long enough, you kind of try to develop a sense in talking to your patient, is the patient motivated? 
And this fact that many patients are not motivated, they say, well, no, I like my I like my way of living. Just give me the pill and, and let me be. But I think you try to motivate the patient in a way to explain first what this condition means and what the risk associated with it is. And most of the patients then actually begin in the discussion to turn around and understand some of this. We here have pretty much all patients meet with a nutritionist to devise a a medical nutrition therapy to achieve a 5% weight loss. We initiate medical weight loss therapy in patients with BMI above 27 and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And of course, we provide exercise recommendations. But I think in, in trying to identify those patients that are motivated and try to identify the barriers, why a patient would not be motivated, are there reasons, socioeconomic reasons, cost. I mean, if you want to live healthy in the United States, it's terribly expensive. Okay, so highly palatable, highly dense caloric food is, is cheap. So we have a huge discrepancy there. And I think you try to work your way through as to how can you help the patient and how can you um, get to a strategy that, that works for the patient. So I think, again, that is probably the most challenging aspect. What I do is I always give the, in the first encounter, I give the patient the benefit of the doubt. I tell them, you meet with a nutritionist, you meet with an exercise physiologist. We are lucky here because we have this infrastructure. If I identify barriers, we have psychology and psychiatric counseling available, which is phenomenal, of course. They will discuss motivational interviewing and, and, and things like that with the patient. So I usually then give the patient the benefit of the doubt. I say, give it a chance. And I tell the patient, try to lose one pound a week by weighing yourself and documenting your weight. I set a goal for a four-week follow-up, and I say to the patient, I want you to come back in four weeks, and in four weeks, you've lost four pounds. And that sounds achievable, so you set small milestone goals and try to motivate the patient. Sometimes, again, there are those patients that are where you know already that that's not going to work, and then I think you, you start medical therapy very early. Definitely hear that. So goal, small steps, and identification of barriers are just key principles. But obviously, sometimes pharmacological therapies are important. And so, you know, some of the anxieties that I associate with prescribing new drugs that I'm less familiar with are sometimes cost-related and having to do all this prior auth, you know, work that is just like uh, no one's uh, favorite thing to do. But also unperceived side effects and drug-drug interactions that I may not have anticipated because I'm focused on the particular effect of the drug that I'm using. And I'm not really thinking outside of the box when it comes to the other effects that these drugs may have, especially if it's something that I'm not prescribing on a daily basis yet. So, you know, in our patient, we definitely would want to start statin therapy for Mr. Amin at this point. But Dr. Brumer, isn't there data that statins may cause or worsen diabetes? Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, you know, what, what, when, whenever you have a patient and you name a new drug, you get an encounter call or email later on saying that where you can see that the patient educated himself on Google. So, so patients will come back and say, well, I have diabetes or I have prediabetes. When I'm on statin, am I going to get diabetes? So 
I think we have to see this in perspective. So this this initial observation that actually came out of the Jupiter trial, looking at uh, rosuvastatin in about 9,000 patients on placebo and 9,000 patients on rosuvastatin. And between both groups, there were 270 reports of diabetes in the rosuvastatin arm versus 216 in the placebo group. So there were more incident diabetes in the group of rosuvastatin. And that finding was actually later confirmed and meta-analysis. And it seems to be that there's probably about 10% risk in incident diabetes compared to a placebo um, comparison with statin therapy. Now, in patients without diabetes, statins may increase the fasting glucose level by about 3 milligram per deciliter, and that's been attributed to insulin resistance and insulin secretion effects in part. Now, while in patients with diabetes, high-intensity statin therapy may increase the hemoglobin A1c by a range of about 0.3. So if you put this in perspective, the effect is minor, but it is present. But the main point about this is that in one of the largest data sets that's actually available has shown that about one out of 255 patients treated with statins will develop diabetes over four years. So keep that number in mind. One out of one out of 255 patients will develop diabetes over four years, but at the same time, you get the benefit of risk reduction and LDL cholesterol reduction. So in that same 254 patients, you would reduce 4.5 cardiovascular events. So Yes, there is an increased incidence of diabetes, but putting this into perspective, would you rather have a 0.3% increase in your hemoglobin A1c or a myocardial infarction? So I, I would know my pick. Thanks for going over that, Dr. Boomer. And now returning back to Mr. Amin, I'd love to learn more about your approach to initiating medical management for the diabetes itself. What is the relative benefit of lifestyle versus medication? And when do you start medication therapy? And as a first-line agent, what do we need to know about starting metformin? Yeah, that's a very, very controversial area, actually. So the U.S. guidelines still predict to initiate lifestyle therapy plus metformin at the time of diagnosis, and whereas the European guidelines have already shifted in patients with or at an increased risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, SGLT2 inhibitors, or GLP-1 receptor agonists. So new diabetic agents with um, much more data for cardiovascular benefits have become first-line therapies, at least in the European guidelines. Keeping in mind, metformin, it's a, it's a good drug. The data for metformin use as a first-line therapy came really out of the UK PDS trial that had a subarm with 1,700 overweight patients. And in those 1,700 overweight patients, there were 342 patients taking metformin. And in the metformin group, there were 50 myocardial infarctions versus 69 myocardial infarctions in the group that was not taking metformin. So this data has really generated much of the guidelines. This would never work for the FDA in, in, in today's cardiovascular arena. So 
I think it's important to use metformin. I think we still use that, even I use that, but mostly because payers will not allow you to write an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist without proving that the patient has inefficient glycemic control with metformin monotherapy. That's the main reason why we still use metformin as a first line. I think the data is poor. I would wish we could use alternative medications as first-line therapy. Oftentimes, most of the patients, keeping in mind, they will need several medications. So we end up with a combination thereof. Sounds like ideally you'd start with one of these novel agents, but but practically you have to start with metformin, but then ultimately metformin plus, you know, dealer's choice after that makes sense from a practical standpoint. And speaking of starting from anti-diabetic medications, which patients are ideal for sulfonylureas and TZDs? And Dr. Brumer, you'll have to forgive me. I Googled the uh, long term of the TZDs and I was like, I can't say this. So I'll just let you say what those are. And can you remind us how these agents work and what are their pitfalls? So it took me about five years to learn the word. So here you go. Thiazolidine dions. Okay. So, but. Woo! We just, we, well, that's definitely not how I would have said it, but good to know. I had to practice this for a long time. So, so first of all, you know, we ask about sulfonylureas and thiazolidine diens. So, the the oldest drug for diabetes is sulfonylureas. They're pretty much, I think, nowadays from a cardiovascular standpoint and from an efficacy standpoint and from a safety standpoint, actually, they're, I would say, almost at least for a preventive cardiologist, endocrinologist, I would consider them obsolete. There's no efficacy data past four years. There's no cardiovascular benefit. In fact, if you look at large meta-analysis, increased all-cause mortality and possibly even increased MACE events in meta-analysis with So I try not to use those medications. We have safer medications and better medications. The the TZDs used to be, of course, much more frequently used. They're quite efficient. They work by improving insulin sensitivity, mostly at the level of muscle. Actually work complementary, metformin, decreasing hepatic glucose production and hepatic insulin sensitivity versus a thiazolidine dion improving muscle insulin sensitivity. So they are are good agents from a mechanistic standpoint because they target the defect in many patients with diabetes, that being insulin resistance. However, because of adverse effects, they're not being used much frequent. Although I have to say that pioglitazone has a kind of outlived the renaissance with more data and with very good safety data. Rosiglitazone, because of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, is is almost not used at all. I haven't seen a patient taking rosiglitazone in a long time. So I think pyroglitazone remains from those that you discussed from the softeners and from the thiazolidine dance remains really the only option as a potential therapy 
based on data coming out of a trial called IRIS for stroke reduction and proactive trial and periscope trial. So those were all safety trials that had potentially even shown coronary decreased coronary events, but definitely decreased incidence of stroke in the IRIS trial. And it's a generic drug. So I think pyoglitazone is still to be considered. Thanks for, for that. And you mentioned the uh, rosiglitazone and cardiovascular effects. And I have to say in 2008, I wasn't quite wearing diapers, but I was much, I was definitely a much younger man. And I know that clinical trials for anti-diabetic medications now must include assessment of cardiovascular outcomes and safety. Can you tell us a bit more about the history behind this and why this rule was enacted by the FDA in 2008? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, so first of all, I think this discussion was initiated by a adverse signal for rosiglitazone on, on, on poor cardiovascular outcomes. And this was a meta-analysis published by Dr. Steve Nissen here from our institution. There were follow-up meta-analysis done by Dr. Linkoff, et cetera, by others. So, and the data suggested that rosiglitazone has adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Now, the FDA was alerted and by this finding and ultimately decided because of the evidence that diabetes is such a vascular disease with high, poor cardiovascular outcomes, it was decided that any future diabetes drug will need a cardiovascular outcome trial. So the FDA really was responding to concerns about the potential for increased cardiovascular risk associated with rosiglitazone, and that led to a guidance on any future drug proving cardiovascular at least um, non-inferiority compared to um, what's currently available. So now we pretty much know that any new drug that comes on the market in the diabetes field will need a cardiovascular outcome trial. Yeah, that was a great discussion. And, you know, I always love listening to Dr. Steve Nissen talk about the story from his perspective. It just reminds me of how many different roles a physician can play outside of clinical medicine. But hey, you know, this is a clinical podcast. So let's get back to a patient I saw actually recently in my continuity clinic with Dr. Jaber. Mr. Wonka Goodbar is a 70-year-old man with a history of type 2 diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C of 9.1%, morbid obesity with a BMI of 49, uh, and a AAA status for surgical repair, hypertension, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and atrial fibrillation, who returned for routine follow-up. His med list included metformin 1,000 milligrams BID and rosuvastatin 40 milligrams daily. He expressed a lot of frustration about his inability to lose weight. We really focused a lot of our clinic visit on this issue. And so here's what we did. We counseled him about weight loss and specifically calorie restriction, referred him to a registered dietitian, started a GLP-1 agonist, and we discussed the possibility of pursuing metabolic surgery which he chose to defer until the next visit. So Dr. Broomer, I'd love your feedback here and especially your perspectives on GLP-1 agonists. So before I answer that question, Amit, congratulations. You've become now a hobby endocrinologist. So you're on board. <laughs> well, 
I, I do. I do. I will say that it was after we started working with the ASPC and making this these prevention series that really my worldview of the impact we can have in clinic changed drastically. So I will say this is a, a relatively recent shift in my practice. I second that. It definitely has totally, totally made me rethink uh, so much, and it's definitely had a really positive effect. Yeah, the, the, you guys are phenomenal. Again, this is this is exactly what we need. So. You ask about GLP-1 receptor agonists. So just briefly in a nutshell, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, they bind to a GLP-1 receptor, which is found in the pancreas, of course, in the gastric mucosa. It's also found in the hypothalamus and actually in the heart. So through binding, these receptor agonists promote glucose-dependent insulin release and in addition have effect on gastric mobility, slow gastric emptying, so patients feel full, inhibit glucagon, and reduce ultimately food intake. So their efficacy to lower hemoglobin A1c is somewhere around 1%. There's really three main drugs that we now use for cardiovascular benefit. The first drug that was available, exenatide, was cardiovascular neutral. But liraglutide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide are those drugs now that have proven cardiovascular benefit in outcome trials. And they're fairly easy, actually, to initiate. We can discuss that in more detail if, if, if you guys are interested. But, you know, I think in, in your patient, you, you did absolutely the right thing. You first counseled him about weight loss. You would try to support the patient on his path to losing weight. You discussed bariatric surgery. Combined with lifestyle in clinical trials, um, GLP-1 receptor agonists lead to up about the 5% total body weight loss. And that's the 5% that is recommended in the guidelines and that we know from um, mostly look-ahead trial and a Mediterranean diet trial that 5% weight loss is what you need in order to lower your hemoglobin A1c. And, you know, I think the patient also made the right decision to first attempt lifestyle modification, medical weight loss with a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and may ultimately proceed to bariatric surgery if, if really needed. So I think, Amit, congratulations on taking care of his patient. Let's, you know, so we've started metformin and let's get a little bit practical. How do you start and titrate GLP-1 agonists and what symptoms should we look out for? So it, it, it is actually fairly easy to add these medications. I think first and foremost, you need to discuss with the patient that these are injectable medications. So the patient has to be comfortable to give shots. It is super easy. But there is a barrier initially so that the patient has to overcome. And there is now a oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is the oral semaglutide and hasn't shown cardiovascular benefit yet, but which can be used as well. So the three injectable, liraglutide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide, those are the ones that we use. I give you an example for liraglutide which is daily injection, semaglutide, and dulaglutide are weekly injections. So if you were to use liraglutide, which, by the way, comes in doses from 0.6 to 3 milligrams, the higher doses, 1.8 to 3 milligrams, are what we actually use for pure weight loss indication. 
three milligrams of liraglutide has an indication for weight management, irrespective of diabetes. But to stick with your patient going back to diabetes, so you would want to tell the patient first that this is an injectable medication. You would tell the patient this is an adjunct medical therapy to lifestyle change, including weight loss and exercise. In patients on insulin, you want to discuss the risk of hypoglycemia, potentially even lower the basal insulin amount. And that's where it sometimes gets already a little bit tricky. In my experience, the insulin is not that much of a problem because most of the patients that we see are not controlled. So so you would tell the patient, you would counsel the patient on side effects, most common, nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea, uh, up to increase in mild increases in serum lipase and amylase, all the way to acute pancreatitis as a side effect, which is very infrequent and less than 1%. In fact, I've never seen this. So, and then, and then you would tell the patient that you would give an injection. You would start at 0.6 milligrams with lulagotide. You would use that for one week. I have the patient call me after one week if the patient tolerates it. I often keep the patient on that dose, although the package insert said you should increase that after one week. But I like to stretch this a little bit because if a patient is already losing weight and getting benefit at 0.6, I, I want to write that out a little bit. And then usually the nausea becomes less after a while and the weight loss plateaued. And that's when I go, up, go ahead and increase the dose further to 1.2 or 1.8. And, you know, semaglutide and dulaglutide are weekly injections. Patients pick a day of the week, take semaglutide 0.5 milligrams weekly or dulaglutide at 0.75 milligrams weekly. So starting these medications is actually pretty straightforward. Okay, great. So he's down with the injectables and he's on board with diet and exercise. He's going to look out for the side effects that we just talked about. 0.6 milligrams dulaglutide times a week. And we're going to look out for these potential things. Are there any contraindications that I should be thinking about that he cannot be on this medicine? These GLP-1 receptor agonists have a black box warning for, med for genetic medullary C-cell carcinoma of the thyroid, and that has been shown in rat models that there's an increased incidence of medullary C-cell carcinoma. So in those patients that have a family history of thyroid cancer or proven medullary thyroid cancer, it's, it's not a drug you would want to use. I personally have never experienced that situation, though. But it's probably, you know, you, you, you want to discuss that with the patient, of course, to be safe and to not miss that. Great. Thanks, Dr. Brumer. And, you know, we did discuss uh, metabolic or bariatric surgery with him. You know, I, the other day I was walking by Dr. Cho's office and I went in there and we just started talking about preventive cardiology and in uh, our bariatric group here. And, you know, she told me something that I, I didn't realize that there's some data that bariatric surgery may be useful in, di in diabetes management, even independent of weight loss. Is that true? Yes, that is true. And that is because we now know that bariatric alters many of these gut hormones and may actually improve glycemic control that way, irrespective of weight loss. Now, you have to keep in mind, bariatric surgery, yes, it's very effective. It is very effective on improving glycemic control. It's very effective on sometimes even all the way to reversing diabetes. It prevents cardiovascular outcomes in a very dramatic way. But it is a fairly, you know, it's a 
fairly unless just a sleeve gastrectomy if uh, Rouen Y bariatric surgery is a fairly altering physiology surgery. So I think that's something to keep in mind. This is not a procedure that has no complications. These patients need to be followed, vitamin deficiencies watched, etc. So, so I would always discuss that with the patient and I would always advise to, and that's what most centers do, attempt medical or attempt non-surgical weight loss attempts first, which, which is definitely my initial approach. Thanks for going over that. Let's move on to another case I had in clinic. Mr. Hershey Toblerone is a 70-year-old man with a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, status post-prior cabbage. HEF-PEF, or heart failure with preserved ejecting fraction, atrial fibrillation, and CKD, who returns to clinic for a routine visit. His metformin was actually stopped during a recent admission, but was never resumed. His A1C actually is 5.7 on linocliptin and Lantus insulin, 30 units nightly. His finger stick glucose values have actually been running in the 70s to 80s. So here's what we did. We stopped his DPP-4 agent linocliptin, we asked him to slowly down titrate his insulin uh, and log his glucose values to achieve glucose levels closer to a more normal range because he was clearly well below a goal, uh, a goal for diabetes. We made a plan to start an SGLT2 inhibitor once glucose levels were more acceptable. And since his A1C was well below goal, we thought maybe he could just transition to a non-insulin oral regimen, which is what he was on prior to his admission in the first place. Uh, so I'd love your uh, perspectives uh, with this case, Dr. Boomer. Again, you're the hobby endocrinologist. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. So what strikes you first and foremost is if you see consistent fasting glucose levels in any patient on insulin that reach double digits, you need to be alert, okay? Um, this is a 70-year-old gentleman Toblerone, he's probably from Switzerland. So, but as a 70-year-old gentleman with multiple comorbidities, complicated coronary disease, you know, half PEF, AFib, CKD. So when you hear hemoglobin A1C of 5.7 and fasting insulin levels of 70, you, you gotta be on the lookout. And I think you know that relates then to the discussion what would be the hemoglobin A1C goal for him? And this is where it clearly needs to be individualized. You know, if this was a 24-year-old type 1 diabetic patient on continuous glucose monitoring with a sensor, I would say perfect, you know, no change. But for this gentleman, I think you, you, you absolutely do the right thing. And, you know, again, once you get double-digit numbers, you, you want to be careful. And I think the hemoglobin A1C for him, I would probably be very comfortable if it's in the 7, 7.5 kind of range. Keep it safe, okay? Do no harm. That's the rule number one. Now, EPP4 inhibitors are not very effective and have no cardiovascular benefits. So I think you did the right thing to stop these. They, I think, probably belong like softeners in the category of medications that we should not be using any longer because, again, we have alternatives that are safer and better with cardiovascular benefit. So in addition, it's probable 
that the lenagliptin had very little effect on lowering his hemoglobin A1c anyway. So I would probably suggest that most of his A1c reduction comes from the basal insulin. So, you know, I agree. I totally agree with what you did. I, I would have probably just stopped the insulin and added the SGLT2 inhibitors. So, and then have the patient check and, and come back or report the logs, you know. I think the SGLT2 inhibitor would compare to placebo reduce the hemoglobin A1C by about 0.7 percentage points. So an SGLT2 inhibitor would be an excellent choice, not just because of the risk to avoid hypoglycemia, but for this patient, also for cardiovascular event reduction. And I would argue renal benefit because he has CKD. Now, we're not given the creatinine here, but you know, for such a patient, I think if you had started an SGLT2 inhibitor and you still needed additional medication to um, treat his hyperglycemia, I would probably have opted for, for oral semaglutide, which is a good option. It's a GLP-1 receptor agonist that's taken in pill form. So I think that might be an alternative, might reduce his hemoglobin A1c another percentage point. So Depending on what his GFR is, you could have argued, well, maybe we can even resume um, metformin. So in addition, I think if the patient is not is not in clinical heart failure and we have financial issues, let's say his insurance will not cover an SGLT2 inhibitor and will not cover a GLP-1 receptor agonist, they want you to use glimipiride then I would have probably opted to maybe even add low-dose pyoglitazone for him, of course, unless he is clinically volume overloaded. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Boomer. And actually, you know, the point you raised about uh, being concerned about his double-digit glucose is after we talked to him for a while, we realized that after he was started on insulin, he, after some time, developed, actually received a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and was started on Aricept. So we were actually very concerned that his new short-term memory losses related to these hypoglycemic events that were going uh, undetected. Yeah. And I'll add that it's really fascinating to hear you, you know, I'm like watching your brain, like figure out which regimen is right for which patient. And just watching, you know, listening to your thought processes is so uh, rewarding. I really, again, it goes back to this whole holistic approach and, you know, looking at every you know patient and thinking about their underlying comorbidities besides for diabetes, helping you select the right concoction for your patient. And then you even have a plan A, plan B, plan C. This is it's quite actually uh, fascinating. I know that SGL2s are, inhibitors are, there's a risk for hypoglycemia and also euglycemic DKA. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, to relate to what you mentioned, it's, there's a handful of drugs and it's not that difficult, actually. You know, I think you, you got to know your ABCs for those couple of drugs and, and then I think you'll be very comfortable to use them, like you use ARBs or ACES or beta block or CORIC or metoprolol. So I think this, you, you, you'll have that down fairly well. So SGLT2 inhibitors, you mentioned hypoglycemia. So I would say in the absence of any additional glucose-lowering medications for diabetes, particularly insulin or sulfonuria, I think the risk for hypoglycemia is exceedingly low. You know, in one of the main trials, there was no significant difference in hypoglycemia frequency between placebo and empagliflozin, for example. So these are fairly safe drugs. We have data now 
on patients without diabetes. So I think this is a this is a good drug for well for most of the patients that we see. So they are fairly safe safe medications. I usually use empagliflozin or dapagliflozin to keep it simple, starting at ten milligrams or five milligrams respectively. The side effects that you can get with these medications, you have to be careful with dehydration, keeping in mind that these are sort of osmotic diuretics. So I do hear from patients frequently that they're super thirsty. So you are doing osmotic diuresis. You need to discuss with the patient the concern of genitourinary fungal infections. Mostly they occur in about 5 to 10% of the females, mostly fungal infections, less in females. Also, dysuria can occur, but what you mentioned, the risk of euglycemic ketoacidosis is pretty small, but it is notable. So you want to be careful in certain patients. Certainly, you don't want to use that in type 1 diabetic patients, obviously. I'm sometimes more careful in lean patients or in patients that tend to do other severe means of dieting, intermittent fasting and things like that. So, so it's something to discuss with the patient but it is very infrequent. Yeah, I really appreciate you going over that. And I also appreciate you highlighting the risk of sort of surface genitourinary fungal infections, but not the, the more severe ascending urinary tract infections, which I think um, you know, has some people hesitate on occasion. Let's move on to another patient to highlight another role for these medications. Nestle Reese's is a 55-year-old man with type 2 diabetes, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, with heart failure with low ejection fraction, hypertension, and CKD. He was admitted after developing a rash following initiation of spironolactone, which was subsequently stopped. He was euvolemic and on maximally tolerated doses of Entresto and Carvedilol. His A1C is 7.5 on metformin. So we uh, were actually able to start SGLT2 inpatient after verifying he had insurance coverage, and we uh, simultaneously sort of empirically reduced the diuretic dose that he was on at the time. So what is your perspective about uh, the role of SGLT2 in this patient, Dr. Rumer? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you used absolutely the right drug of choice for this patient because of benefit, both with respect to heart failure rehospitalization mortality, and also with respect to his chronic kidney disease. So, I mean, as you know, a large trial, one of the first studies with this um, class of medications, EMPAREC trial, did show a significant reduction in cardiovascular and all-cause mortality, but also showed a 35% risk reduction in heart failure hospitalization. And it is assumed that the early separation in the curves between placebo and drug were actually driven potentially even by the heart failure benefit of this drug. So the benefit occurs very quickly. Two other cardiovascular outcome trials, Declare Timmy and Canvas, showed to similar, extended this to basically the class, dapagliflozin and canagliflozin. And in most recently in the DAPA heart failure trial, the heart failure benefit with respect to rehospitalization and mortality was extended to patients um, without diabetes. So I think this is the right choice of drug. I, I think with respect to renal questions, 
or empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and dapagliflozin, they all reduce progression of nephropathy in patients with a GFR. Um, above 30, GL2 inhibitors reduce worsening of nephropathy, um, um, reduce the frequency of doubling of serum creatinine by about 44%, and also reduce the progression of renal replacement therapy by about 55%. So these are all very beneficial outcomes for this patient. Yeah, and we had Dr. Mentz from uh, Duke Medical Center talk about a little bit about this as well. But it's quite interesting that DAPA-HF enrolled, regardless of diabetes status, really making us think of SGL2 uh, inhibitors as a, as a cardiovascular medication rather than just an anti-diabetes medication. You know, so you know, this obviously speaks to the pleiotrophic effects of SGL2 inhibitors on weight and blood pressure and renal outcomes. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I, I think the observation that we see benefits for cardiovascular mortality events and lastly here most recently for heart failure is very encouraging. We haven't had a drug like this, a drug class for many, many years. Cardiologists were always wondering, well, mm, diabetes care doesn't really work because we have no drugs, but now this has really changed. So now we're actually, particularly because we see in DAPA-HF the benefit in patients without diabetes, now we're talking about heart failure medication that falls in the same category as Entresto, for example. So this has become a heart failure medication, and I would argue that this class of medication is a cardiovascular medication. And that kind of brings us back to our first point of discussion that we're now use, using these drugs for a primary cardiac indication. So there is no way but for the cardiologist to begin to become comfortable using those. So, and I think that's why you guys are, are doing this. And, and, and I think this is phenomenal. You mentioned briefly weight loss, blood pressure. These are some of the effects that I think are mostly attributed to the energy loss associated with glucosuria and osmotic diuresis. The effect on blood pressure with SGLT2 inhibitors is about average reduction, probably about four millimeter mercury shown on 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So a meaningful reduction in blood pressure. Weight loss is mild in 12-week trials. Dapagliflozin, canagliflozin, and empagliflozin show about a two to six kilograms, so four to six pound weight loss. This weight loss appears to be sustained over time, which is excellent for patients. So this in combination, I think, makes this a very new and very promising drug. I think the main concern that we're dealing with is to expand use to the general population. That's um, what we have to um, improve now. You know, you really speak about it as a cardiovascular medication. I could, I could really feel it. And I do think that that, you know, when all these studies have come out recently with the SGL2 inhibitors, this is what re-engaged the cardiovascular community. 
I, you know, you see it with the people that I work with and you see it on, you know, Twitter and social media. This is kind of what is drawing the cardiologist back to diabetes medicines. And it's just a, it's a, it's a great time to be in medicine. That being said, Dr. Broomer, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? Well, I think, I mean, as a physician, what could you not love about preventing disease? I mean, that's, that is the ultimate goal, right? We don't, want to treat disease, we want to prevent disease. I mean, doesn't this make sense? So why would you focus on treating a disease if you can start to or attempt to prevent it in the first place? Now, looking back in my own personal career, when I was back in training in Germany, we used to stent patients with chronic stable angina all the time. We would bring them back to the cath lab every six months to make sure that the stent was open that was in the era before drug eluting stents. And we would then re-stent and re-angioplasty. And now we know that that approach is obsolete. And simply put, the mechanical work doesn't, doesn't apply. So the mechanical approach is not working. So we've become to understand that prevention does not only work better, but it's also more cost-effective. In fact, I would argue that we're seeing that this is very true for patients even with moderate to high-risk ischemia. Prevention just seems to work better. I mean, looking at new data, I mean, you guys know that I'm referring to the ischemia trial. Now, who will not work in prevention nowadays? Looking at uh, 100 million U.S. people with diabetes and prediabetes and one out of five adolescents with prediabetes in the United States, I think, with the associated expected rise in cardiovascular disease, I think preventive cardiology is where the future is. Well, Dr. Boomer, I will definitely raise a toast to that. Uh, and, you know, overall, this is just such a phenomenal and eye-opening discussion, really full of pearls and practical tips. With this episode, we are just arming a legion of cardiologists who really own the management of diabetes in a partnership with their primary care doctors, endocrinologists, dietitians, diabetes educators, metabolic surgeons, and of course, the patients themselves. I think the impact that we can have with a holistic approach in this way is going to be great. And, you know, we're just so grateful for your time and perspectives and helping us carry this message forward. Thank you, Dr. Berman. Well, absolutely. I mean, thank you so much for having me. And I think you guys do a very important, if not more important job, because you try to educate. And that's that's exactly what, what we need to do. So I was thrilled to be here. And thank you very much. And, and please keep going. Hi, this is Ahmed Kara. I am President of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and Professor of Medicine, Director of Preventive Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds Podcast. What an amazing job these folks do, and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too.